you know, what are the fragments that we are, uh, that make who we are, you know, the fragments that we, you know, gather through all our life, through our, like, family history, the culture, the society, the, you know, the, the places we are in, like, all these little fragments that creates us. So, basically, what creates our, like, identities. And welcome to the 79th episode of Pine Copper Line, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Line on Instagram and Facebook. All of this and more can be found at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and they all help keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like stickers and totes, so if that sounds like something you're interested in, please check out the link in the show notes. It's also fine if you're not interested at all in that, because times are tough and weird, and we're just trying to get through it together. So if you just want to listen to the show and enjoy what you hear, we want you to do just that. Hey, hey, print friends. We have merch, printmaking jokes, the Pine Copper Line logo, and now, by popular demand, a Shun the Non-Believers design, which, if I do say so myself, might be my favorite thus far. Check it out now, link in the show notes. And one more quick bit of housekeeping, we are archiving past Pine Copper Lime episodes on YouTube for your easy listening and sharing with people who are confused and suspicious and don't know what a podcast is and don't care to learn. Also, YouTube actually offers not bad closed captioning, so if that's something you or someone you know might want in their life, you can check it out there too. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like Armheim 1618, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill near the city of Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs, and our friend and guest of episode number four, Miles Calvert evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's new impressions contest, where they can produce work in every print medium. So, if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever inky ideas you want to throw at it, then head on over to speedballart.com to find where you can pick up the start of your next edition. Most of us know how to go at a block with a chisel, but if you've ever seen those Yukioi blocks with your own eyes, you know those lines will only come from using a variety of tools, maybe most importantly a knife. And luckily for our editor, McLean's has resources to show you exactly how to hold your new tools in your hands and keep your joints safe and comfortable. So go to imaclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and learn something new today. Now, we usually plug our next week's episode at the end of the episode, but next week we're talking with Phil Sanders, previous director of the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop and master printer at ULAE. We're going to be discussing his new book, Prints and Their Makers, and we don't want you to miss out on the Prints and Their Makers book clubs that he's launching next week. These events are free and open to the public. They're going to be a bi-weekly look at fine art prints and the art of printmaking from the perspective of artists, printers, and publishers. These 45-minute Zoom events will also include time for questions and catching up afterwards. The first one is starting on February 25th. This is going to be a great way to feel connected to our community while we're all still social distancing. Go to philsandersprintmaking.com slash book dash club or check out the link in the show notes to find more details. I'll see you there. My guest this week is Ewelina Skrowinska. Ewelina is a Polish printmaker who trained in the UK and now lives and works in Tokyo. In this episode, we talk about her political science background shaping her art career, advertising as an art form, moving to Japan and discovering the print scene there, the female body in flux, and how sometimes when you need a print studio, you just gotta make one yourself. 
So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to build something with Evelina Skrovoinska. Hi, Evelina. How's it going? Hello, hello. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> I'm good. I'm really thrilled to be talking to someone who's kind of in my time zone. You know, we're, it's both daytime for us. That's unusual during my Pine Copper Lime interviews. <laughs> yes, I totally know what you mean, because usually I also uh, Zoom or escape with people from Europe or US. Yeah. And it's always like different time zones. So it's also nice to, to speak with someone a little bit closer <laughs> to Japan. Yeah, because I think we're three hours apart, which is, I mean, that's just East Coast, West Coast, you know, for, for the States. Well, I definitely got to know you when you sent me an email and introduced yourself and let me know sort of who you were and what you were doing. And I found it very intriguing. And so I'm really excited to learn more. You know, you kind of touched on uh, several of my interests here, not the least of which is that you live in Tokyo and I am a Japanophile, Nipponophile, I'm not sure exactly what you, you call that, but I've long been interested in Japan and Japanese culture. And you're from Poland, which is where my husband's family is from. And so I was oh, like, wow. yeah. And so I was like, oh, interesting. So I'm really excited to hear more about your life and your art practice. But before we dive into all of it, would you please introduce yourself a little bit to people and let them know who you are and where you are and what how would you describe it as what it is that you do sure so first of all thank you for having me uh, I when I discover your podcast uh, about print making I was like oh my god wow she's so great she's oh. amazing <laughs> and all the like episode you had I was like oh my god I want to be there <laughs> so thank you for inviting me but yes, going back to, to me and my practice, uh, my name is Ewelina Skowrońska. I'm a Polish visual artist, uh, mainly working with printmaking. Also work with ceramic, doing uh, sculptures and 3D objects. Uh, for five years now, I live in Japan, and this is where I uh, have my studio and just you know, create my work. And I can say that my work is quite feminine. Uh, I'm interested in the in the body and what kind of story brings the body, what is the experience of living within the body and how like culture and uh, society influence also our bodies. Beautiful. A little more background on you first. You said that you're from Poland. Can you tell us about where you grew up and what role art had in that part of your life? So I'm from southwest of Poland, a city called Wrocław. It's quite close to, to Germany, like to Berlin. It's maybe like three hours drive. And this is where I was growing up and I was actually going to university and I studied political science. I always want to do, do art, but I didn't get accepted to the art school. And my parents, they pursued me to, to study something. And I just found like politics science quite interesting so I did my master's there and then I start working actually in advertising because I want to do still something creative and I felt that like advertising could like combine those elements of like still being creative and and like working and so I work in advertising for like six seven years as a as a creative but art was hunting me and uh, I was still like all the time drawing and trying to do different creative things and at some point I I just felt that if I want to try and if I just don't follow my heart I will just will be always regretting so I decided to to again try to pass exams to the art school so I was accepted accepted in London because at that moment of time I just didn't want to go through like five years course uh, programs in Poland because this is how this the, the school system was working I felt I'm a little bit like too old to mm. you know start kind of from the scratch and I could do my master's in London since I already had a master and I got accepted I got full scholarship so I quit my job and I moved to London and I study in like Camberwell College of Art which has amazing printmaking uh, department and I fall in love with printmaking over there and uh, I graduated and then I moved to Japan <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just like that. Yeah. Just boom, boom, boom. Yeah. I, I felt I was talking so long. So yeah, of course I can, I can yeah. a little bit more yeah. about it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually curious maybe to, for us to talk a little bit more about advertising as creative yeah. practice, because I think that people can have kind of a reaction to people talking about being in advertising sometime that like, oh, that's so shallow, that's brainwashing, that's capitalism, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But I do actually think that it's an incredibly creative practice because it's, it's about visual communication and visual culture in this way that overlaps really significantly with art. I think that we maybe got a little bit of a taste of that when Mad Men was insanely popular 12 <laughs> years ago or whenever that was. Yes. But it's something that I think people write off maybe too quickly. And so mm. maybe you can talk a little bit about that, having had that experience mm. before going to art school. So I definitely don't regret my times, you know, uh, that I spent working in advertising. I felt I learned a lot of things. I met really interesting people. And I've been, uh, since I, you know, I've been working for uh, one of the biggest agencies in Poland and we had like really big clients. So, you know, I had chance to, to shoot like, you know, commercial videos, to work on like uh, digital campaigns, to work on more like event-based kind of campaigns. So it really like opened up the creativity and you can use a lot of different tools to make your idea happen, mm -hmm. especially that there is a client paying for it. Right. With, <laughs> right? In, the, in the art, it's usually like you have to get the finding or you have a sponsor or you, you have your own budget to, to produce. So I think that's, that's something that the client is paying. But, uh, but yes, of course, at the end of the day, you're selling washing powder, insurance or other like things that... Of course, they open up the question, do we do we need them? What kind of practices are used to sell them? And, and especially I feel now with all the social media and all this like gray zone about like algorithm, like knowing what we want mm -hmm. and like selling us stuff. Of course, it's like super, super like, you know, gray zone. And I feel also that's why at some point for me, I knew I don't want to stay in advertising because I felt that I just don't want to think all my life about the this washing powder or companies. So I, I felt I want to spend my time thinking about something more important mm -hmm. for me. But it's not that I don't respect people who work there. And uh, and some of the campaign are really beautiful and they also influence life, like social campaign and this, the campaign that talk about like more important things than just selling the product. But I, I guess we could discuss about this like a really long time. Yeah, we could have a whole nother episode on it. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I feel, you know, there is like a lot of beauty in like, you know, graphic design that, that can be used. And, you know, also like I feel when you work in the agency, you know how much creativity is put into one idea and how there's like so many ideas before this one is like, you know, it's what people see outside. So I think that's also is what is interesting, the creative process and the thinking process behind this like commercial or the banner, you know, on the on the website. Definitely. And it's it's something that I think about particularly in the context of people who aren't in the arts or who don't actively seek to put art in their life this is the creative form of visual communication that they're interfacing with thousands of times a day. And so there is a real weight to that. And I think it's something that the art world should sort of be less dismissive of, particularly, you know, realizing that most binaries are artificial, including this one, all kind of part of this visual communication. And for people who aren't in a place where they can have the luxury of going to art galleries and museums and art openings, this is what they're that they're interfacing with, and it's it's especially with with printmakers. You know that printmaking and commercial function really have a long hand in hand history, and absolutely, you know, binaries and hierarchies, man. Like, let's tear them all down, <laughs> just in general. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I feel also like uh, maybe more in the luxury brands, you can see how they 
like really taking, you know, they want to work uh, with like big artists. When you think, for example, like Judy Chicago, she was collaborating with Dior mm-hmm. uh, on this like really big kind of catwalk thing where they built this like stage and like some uh, artists from India were doing embroidery of, of uh, Judy Chicago, like huge posters on the like fabric. But at the end of the day, they were like models showing the clothes, right? Mm -hmm. But another side is that like Judy Chicago work is beautiful and it should be seen and it should be seen in such a like, you know, big uh, and expensive way of of this like huge installation. So so I think there will be always these questions. And also when you think about, oh, it was Dior, it's such a luxury brand Mm -hmm. that is also very like, you know, exclusive and it creates like differences in the society. Like it's not a label for everyone. And then like you have the artist who talks about like female empowerment. And so, you know, it, it creates all these like questions, but like I feel it's been used before and it's it's used now and probably it's going to be used like this kind of you know marriage between the how we call it commercial life and the like artist life for sure so you're saying that you discovered printmaking when you were doing your master's in London so did you kind of fall in love with it right away were you did you do silkscreen first what was that process like of realizing that this was going to be an intrinsic part of your art practice yeah, so I actually really fall in love with screen prints uh, because I think because also I obviously try other techniques, but I think I always had the fear of like drawing, like direct drawing. So like working with stencils and working with like textures and kind of in a sense, very easy way of dealing with screen print, like was just very accessible so I just really like to work with it because it's fast you know obviously it's 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 printmaking so of course it takes some time and the process but it's not like etching or like lithography that is just like much much longer so I think I really like this uh, this kind this kind of way of working and like the my my master final kind of project was actually done uh, with the use of screen print so this is was like that the, especially this technique was something I really like fall in love and I knew I want to want to continue but uh, like in the meantime during all these years I've been also working with other techniques obviously also since coming to Japan uh, I also learned like the tra- traditional mokuhanga but before I also was doing like some etchings and actually I never got really into lithography mm. uh, so maybe this is something for me to discover yeah uh, but... yeah well that's like that's you know if you don't if the if the immediacy of drawing is giving you hesitation yeah lithography won't really help yeah yeah <laughs> Exactly. I think that's the, the main reason. So yeah, and since then I've been creating, you know, my my art using these techniques. And and it's quite interesting to also, you know, talk about this because um, very often in the art world, like, I feel there is this line between fine art and printmaking. And somehow I, I feel I'm kind of in between because I don't feel my work, like, maybe necessarily follow the traditional like printmaking you know understanding kind of always interested in like pushing the ways of prints so I like to to think about that I'm kind of painting with the printmaking tools you know that uh, that is like that that's that's the way of working for me uh, with like using uh, print, printmaking and and or mixing printmaking with with other methods or like uh, even hand-drawn elements yeah and so you went to college in London, you studied printmaking, and then you just moved to Japan. Like, <laughs> um, please tell us more about that process. So the answer, it's, uh, it's very, very easy, like very simple to all this question. It's very, it's very often the reasons why people travel is because they meet someone. Uh, <laughs> I wondered, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so yeah in in Japan I met my partner mm-hmm. and he's not Japanese he's also Polish mm. But we met in London and he was working for the Japanese company and he got offered to be relocated and literally like a few months after I graduated uh, this kind of opportunity happened and we decided to to give a try and go 
to be honest, me personally, I wasn't like so sure to do it because I just graduated and I felt like I want to be in London. There's like the art is amazing. Maybe it's like tough. It's, you know, it's expensive and big, but like I felt I just didn't do enough yeah. in London yet. And moving to Japan just like straight after graduation and also like straight after like changing my whole life yeah. uh, from like advertising to art. And I didn't even know who I am, you know, as an artist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and moving to completely different culture, a different country, time zone, like everything like new without like knowing the language. So it felt like overwhelming. But on the other hand, it was also ex- excited and I didn't have like any strong arguments to stay in London mm-hmm. apart from like, I'm so scared. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Had you been to Japan before? Did you know what to expect? I, I've been once, but I was uh, doing some uh, design exhibition with a friend I was helping. Uh, they were doing like um, exhibition of Polish design during the Tokyo Designers Week. But, you know, it's completely different when you go somewhere for one week and when you actually mm-hmm. leave there. So I, I think I just I had this like kind of stereotypes in my head now when I think about this, about Japan. And I completely didn't know what can I expect and how life is going to to be here. But like I mentioned, it just felt also part like a kind of adventure. So that's why I decided like, why not? Let's give it a try. And uh, yeah, and we moved. So when it comes to logistic and visa, that was all taken yeah, care yeah. of. So from that respect, yeah, I was very, very lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That that definitely helps. I mean, that's that's how I ended up in in Thailand is just getting getting a job, and and mm-hmm. that's um, how my husband will be able to be here is through my job. So it's you know I think that people often you know really have these fantasies of going and living in other countries, and there's not a whole lot of good ways to do it other than work or marriage really <laughs> the kind of the two exactly. ways if you want to live somewhere exactly for an extended period of time or an indefinite period yeah. of time definitely especially if you travel like outside ue uh, eu which, like you know traveling uh, and moving around is like easy but uh, definitely i'm not i'm not sure about like thailand but like japan is is one of these countries that is not very easy to to move in. Yes. It's not very easy to get the visa, even like renting apartment for foreigners. Mm-hmm. You can be rejected because you foreigners. Not even talking about like having all the credentials and the, you know, kind of people the Japanese side that was telling you know the the landlord that this person is good and will mm-hmm. pay you every month. You yeah. know so. Yeah, definitely Japan is one of these countries that uh, that uh, it's a little bit more difficult. It takes some uh, more energy. But I know here people who, who did it because they just want to be in Japan for this or another reason. And, and they manage but without the marriage and without mm-hmm. the, the job. So, yeah, it's possible. It but is, it's, it's, yeah. For sure challenging <laughs> it definitely is and and yeah thailand is the same way that i think that there's also a sense of this in japan where they're happy for you to come visit and they're happy to meet you and it's a very polite very welcoming society but they're very protective of their thainess and you know when you look at the history of colonialism you can't blame them um, and so, for instance, you know, in Thailand, there's really not a path to citizenship for anyone who's not Thai. And you can't purchase property if you're not Thai. And it's and even if you marry a Thai person, that doesn't necessarily make things easier for you. At no point do you get to get the equivalent of permanent residency status in Australia or a green card in the United States. It's you you have to kind of continue to keep your paperwork up to date. And, you know, again, it's it's one of the things that it particularly uh, maybe as an American coming from a completely like colonized country melting pot. I don't really have a strong enough sense of culture to kind of really understand it, but I do respect it for sure as mm-hmm. as a way of living and adjusting to the fact that like, you don't get to have something just because you want it, you know, like, like they, they have every yeah. right to be like, no, you don't get to be Thai. You're not Thai. And it's like, yes, I'm not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for reminding. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very interesting because I feel uh, it's completely different way of 
just thinking, which mm-hmm. comes from just different culture and like different history and experience because like, and this is what is, I think, amazing and what I learn like almost every day being here, like just, just different way of thinking. The values are different and I would never understand them because I just didn't grow up with them. I could mm. maybe try to like observe and learn, but like, the actual experience is like so far from me. Like I, I can't, I cannot like understand 100%. And coming from Poland and coming from like, you know, Europe, I think we, this, this obviously we've been like, you know, under communist system for many mm-hmm. years and we couldn't like move around. And then when we could like, you know, Polish people, they've been always traveling. They've been always emigrating because of the, you know, the political reason or economical reasons. So there is, I think there was always this, uh, uh, there is always this element of like, you know, being outside of, of Poland or moving around. And especially with European Union, it become even more, more easier. And just, I think there is not such a strong identity. I was like, I'm a Polish, you know, mm. and, and you are not. But here, especially Japan that also been closed for so many years and really like when you think they've been open for like what 200 something years it's just like it's almost like wow it's just like so so little and you can really feel this on every step you can really feel it and like you like you said they are very welcoming and uh, yeah and they they happy if you come here but it's a little bit more difficult when you when you stay mm-hmm. and I think that the more you stay the more like obviously certain things are easier but then the next one are becoming more and more difficult so so yeah but that's also part of the experience I feel and that's something what I always feel it stretched your brain and stretch of like seeing the world yep if you're comfortable you're not growing Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. For the most part, or I guess, I guess, like you can, you can, you don't have to necessarily like be in in active discomfort to grow as a person or as an artist. But mm-hmm. discomfort definitely is a more active opportunity to develop oneself or one's artistic practice. Absolutely. And then, so, so you arrived in Tokyo. What did you find in the way of a contemporary printmaking scene there? Not much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was also, that was one of this first, like, uh, such a huge, uh, you know, disappointment because knowing also the history of printmaking and knowing about the tradition of, like, even stencil making for, like, kimono dyes and, like, you know, that it was actually, like, happening here and then the, the ukiye prints. So I just expect there will be, like, so many print shops that I could like uh, you know open access studio that I could just like go and print but uh, but even this become like it was really challenge and now I at the end I found some places but now I know there are like just like really like few places to do your work here in Tokyo so obviously then you also don't see a lot of this work you know, uh, made by other artists. If they do prints, they're doing in a very kind of like limited ways. And some of them, they have maybe small uh, like printing places at their homes, which obviously like, you know, it gives you some limitation. You don't have so much freedom. So, so yeah, that was really big surprise for me when I came to Tokyo. Yeah, I had a similar experience getting to know the Tokyo print scene and and visiting it myself, you know, and learning that the artists who are there, it's really, you got to make do yourself unless you're, unless you have access to a university as an instructor or student. It's the community centered printmaking is very few and far between if it, if it exists at all. And it is a bit of a surprise, I think, because as printmakers, we have such a reverence for that tradition in Japan and Tokyo being the main city, you bring yeah. your assumptions and, and you think, oh, wow, I bet it's just thriving. And, <laughs> and you then you realize that, no, actually, Seoul has far more community access studios than Tokyo. Absolutely. Which um, is a bit of a surprise. And, and particularly, I think, given that the artists who are working, the printmakers who are working in Tokyo and in Japan more broadly, are remarkably talented, incredible printmakers living and working in Japan right now. But it's really done without that print community in the way that we think of it in Europe and Americas. 
and even in I would I would argue even in Southeast Asia as well, which has plenty of community based printmaking. So yeah, it's kind of it's it's people are working, but they're working very individually. Yes, I I, I feel so, and um, and it's like uh, also the knowledge, the common knowledge of people about what printmaking is is like very like very small. Like most of them, they don't know. Even if you use like Japanese word like hanga. They understand a little bit more, but they can't really understand what do you mean. Mm. When, when like my experience from London or US, at least silk print, like screen print, is because it's con- the connotations like oh t-shirts or exactly. tote bags. They at least know right? something. Yeah. Exactly. So, so this is very little. But then when you say like oh t-shirt, tote bags, they they understand, but they didn't. They don't see this as an art form. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's like kind of more like some merchandise so yeah it's, it's quite interesting and also I found that there are like amazing printmakers but I feel the work is also very traditional in a sense yeah I was just gonna say I was gonna say yeah I mean you see you see a lot of still lives you see a lot of animals yeah a lot of just figurative beautifully rendered works so uh, traditional exactly. in that yeah. sense yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are like technically maybe really beautiful, but I feel like, yeah, they are a little bit going towards this like old tradition of printmaking, which, which what I was mentioning before, like I feel there is this line between fine art and the printmaking and a lot of galleries or, you know, even collectors, they, they see this like black and white prints, you know, or like etchings as uh, examples of printmaking, which I feel kind of there's like so much room for other things to do so uh and i i've been, I've been on like few a uh, kind of annual exhibition of like uh, tokyo printmaker society and uh, yeah i had exactly the same impression mm-hmm. that like what, what i saw was like maybe technically really really beautiful really advanced but but yeah in a, in a sense very traditional and so You've actually undertaken opening up your own studio in the in the void of of community studio access that you found, and you actually did that recently. And so, I guess my question is, how did you come to do that? And you know, why now in 2020, the the year of chaos? Did you did it feel like this is the year? It's been you know after five years, you're like, no, 2020 is the year to take this on. <laughs> um, there was like a lot of elements uh, that influenced this also kind of some of them they were random or maybe not that random so basically for uh, like all this time I've been in Tokyo I was lucky enough that I found a studio a screen print studio mm, run uh, by Itami-san and Fuki-san in Koenji and I've been like super lucky because they the studios may be like small and kind of in a sense coming also from like London beautiful studios like very DIY and uh, you know like I was printing with just like DIY tables with no like vacuum and you know like all this kind of uh, very like simple equipment but they they are printing for big name artists so I thought if they managed to to achieve that quality of printing with this equipment, it means like it's possible. So uh, and we become really close, uh, and they I could consider them as being like my senseis, and I learn a lot from Itami-san uh, printing in his studio. And then I've been uh, going for residencies or printing in some other studio, uh, some other, like using other techniques, but like the other studio is like almost like two hours away from my house. So it it was like, you know, really big trip to go there. So like not very efficient. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at some point I had a printmaking residency in Japan. It is like created two years ago. A uh, place close to Nagasaki, just for printmakers, and they have like a really nice studio because it's like old school converted into studio. It's like a this program made by like local government because obviously the population is aging and there is no much new like kids, yeah. so there is like a lot of this empty buildings, empty schools, and they decided to invest some money and create like this artist in residency. So they created studio for like all printmaking techniques, which is great. And I had the pleasure to be there. 
and me and another guy were the only people there. So, you know, thinking about Japan and limited space, I had like so much space to work. And I just felt it's time to have my own place, not only to print, but like my own studio. Uh, because before I've been, you know, using part of my uh, living room to think about my work, to, to sketch and to like do preparations and was printing at other people's studio, but I couldn't, you know, leave my stuff there or, you know, uh, I just go there to print. So I felt it's time to actually have my own space where where I can experiment, you know, do, do dirty things that I can't do really do in my living room, to have space to invite people to talk about uh, my work and to show my work. Mm-hmm. So that was this kind of the initial kind of spark. And then Corona came mm-hmm. and all my studios were shut. They were closed. I couldn't make my work. So it also showed me how, you know, how my art practice depends on other people. <laughs> and I don't yeah. want this. I don't like this. And then just two other friends told me that they found this building in the north part of Tokyo. North part of Tokyo was always cheaper part mm-hmm. of uh, of the city because it was um, the, the mainly people like working class was living there factory workers and other like just really work working class people so it was uh it was old it was uh, cheaper and uh, and now and actually it also it's really beautiful because it survives the Tokyo firebombing so like there's like a lot of old buildings and I think Sumida World now is also investing some money to bring more artists and uh, to rent some spaces which are abandoned or like they belong to some like older people. And it sounds like there's maybe a lot of historical buildings there. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I bet that's gorgeous. Like the, what you're, the picture you're painting of just industrial meets historical Tokyo buildings just sounds absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently there is like a lot of artists or artist studios around there because, yeah, because it's cheaper. It's cheap but and also pretty. A lot of... That's what we like. <laughs> well I think it also depends what does it mean pretty for you because Mm. you know some of those buildings are like old and for me they are pretty but they are maybe not pretty in a sense how people imagine like Japanese you know like old like sliding doors with the washi paper no no not like this but like still really really cute and also it shows so much history you know the way how the the urban spaces also were created and there is like a lot of this like times like small shops you know, like run by, there was like, I don't know, ladies selling just tofu or selling some something else. So you can really feel very local vibe there. You can really feel that you are, you know, in some in some local area. So yeah, so we had opportunity to just rent a space that is big enough and like cheap enough for me to use it. And in one of the space, I, I decided to, to create a screen printing uh, studio and having also experience in in printing in my sensei studio which was like mostly DIY I also knew I can create something like good without like buying you know all the equipment that is like super professional so so yeah this is what 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 I did and we moved uh actually end of September so it's like really really fresh place I'm still like polishing some elements because I thought this will work but it doesn't and this could work better so I'm still like adjusting but so far so good I managed to print <laughs> uh, so it's it's working it's actually working and yeah and I hope uh, because apart from my studio there's like two other uh, artists and we have small space that for now is gallery but we want this space to be just active when it comes to art and culture we can like host artist talk panel discussions mm. screening some pop-ups so we hope this space will be vibrant and we will have you know other artists uh, coming showing their work or talking about the work and hopefully I can spread the love for you know printing more (laughs) absolutely does the shop have a name not yet not yet okay yeah we have different ideas because it's also quite interesting we one of the the person who who is a part of it he is not the artist he is entrepreneur and uh, he's interested in like offline experience and uh, we, we've been discussing like oh the space should have a name and then he said something interesting like 
but that's kind of also old-fashioned thinking because if the space is like it's my space but also like his space and the other person's space and mm. like and it can be pop-up show but it could be a gallery like why we need to have like something that is one permanent permanent name maybe it could be many things at the same time which is like quite interesting to think about this uh, I think especially also now in the corona because a lot of people stay at home so they they work from home but then maybe the spaces they they, they meet they become something else as well so it's, I think it's quite interesting way way of thinking but we agree that definitely at least the gallery should have a name so we're now working on uh, on the gallery name we have few ideas but um yeah hopefully to the end of this year we will we will like you know nail it down yeah well when you when you find out and when you have like a, the name so you get the instagram or the website or whatever make sure to let me know and i'll i'll be happy to share it with I will. people yeah because <laughs> i i think that there are many people interested in contemporary printmaking in japan and it's a bit difficult to understand or, or to, to gain access to unless you're there in my experience anyway and part of what i've thought is that you know in comparison to the united states where there's this cultural sense of you make something, you're an artist and you got to hustle and you got to get your name out there and get that website and get that hashtag and promote yourself and be your best mm -hmm. advocate and like hustle and get it and lean in. There's really not that sense in Japan. It's more, mm -hmm. you, you know, you study very hard the skills that you want to learn. And maybe after many, many years, you can show what you've been working on. And there's less of a sense of, I made something, I have to put it online so I can get accolades. And so any sort of window in to what's happening, I think would be really welcome to people who are curious about Japanese printmaking. Yeah, contemporary Japanese printmaking. Yeah, for, for sure, I agree. And that's, uh, that's also quite in interesting because what you said, because then I was also feeling that Somehow, even though we perceive Japan to be so like technologically advanced and like very high tech, I feel especially online is something that is really mm -hmm. not there yet. Totally. <laughs> and of course, like people obviously use Instagram or Twitter and Facebook, but then you, yeah. So I think that's that's the like the social media that I can see. It's like it's really in use and people are, are using it but when it comes to you know other initiative where online can could be used in a more like collaborative way uh, I think yeah it's still it's still not there so so I think that that's why we yeah we definitely want this space to be you know like a new spot on the on the Tokyo map of like the culture activities and and art and even like you know discussions about about this so uh, for now, it's like definitely like my studio and two other people's studio. Yeah. But but we know that the, at least the gallery should have a name. So I will, I promise, I will let you know as soon as it's there. I, I think we almost have it. Like we have it. We just like, it's kind of funny. So we just like, you know, giving ourselves like a few more days to think if this funny name is like maybe too funny. <laughs> So to shift gears just a little bit with the time we have left, I do want to make sure we get a chance to talk about your personal practice. Because mm -hmm. as you mentioned in passing earlier, you're interested in the feminine, you use the body a lot in your work. What else would you like people to know, just kind of as an overview about how you describe your practice before we dive in a bit to specifics? I always felt that... I want my work to speak out more than like certain kind of this description mm -hmm. of it, mm -hmm. but uh, but definitely it's uh, I'm also like getting inspired by the different like uh, readings and text. So each body of work also has like different elements that in that inspired by it. And uh, for example, my previous uh, the body of work I was doing in Minami Shimabara in this uh, in this residency that I mentioned in Nagasaki prefecture was inspired by by the poetry of Sappho. Sappho was like ancient uh, Greek poet. She was living on the island of Lesbos and uh, what was what was really interesting 
was that like most of her poems uh, didn't survive until today and what we have access is just the, the fragments so I was using her work when I was like creating my work and I was thinking at that time about you know what are the fragments that we are uh, that made who we are you know the fragments mm-hmm. that we you know gather through all our life for our like family history that culture the society the, you know the the places we are in like all these little fragments that creates us so basically what creates our like identities and then I can see that 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 also reflects in for me in the body and uh, and maybe because I was turning 40 this year I was really also thinking about like who I am as a person who I am as an artist who I am as a woman and so all these elements were like the you know the mixture of thoughts that were, you know, based yeah. in my work. So I, so I guess this is what I want to yeah. think about. <laughs> I always am curious about artwork that is exploring the feminine or feminism or the female experience or the female identifying experience or the being raised culturally female experience. It often comes back to the body and mm. in a way that work that explores the masculine doesn't seem to if we are to you know use that arbitrary binary and I always find that really interesting that it's often about blood and breasts and hands and just the body the female body Mm. is often at the heart of a lot of explorations including you know Judy Chicago who we mentioned earlier and you know a lot of these really iconic uh important artists in this canon and I've got theories about why that is but I would love to hear someone who's in the practice (laughs) speak to it for me I feel maybe because this is something the closest you know to me like actually my body and I can Mm. and I feel I'm in and I've been like all my life almost and I hope through all my life, I will be still learning my body and I can see how it's changing, how it's changing and how also, especially when you female, it changed during your lifetime, how when you're pregnant, you know, your body gets bigger, when you are on your period, you're also changing, it's like in a constant flux and I can also see how all of this stuff that we've been talking about, cultural thing, the the family his like stories the, the our experience how they actually like also shape our body so for me it's really interesting connection between those two and because this is something i'm you know it's with me every day maybe that's why i'm so much like interested and i can't stop thinking about this and i can see how how the music influenced my body how other mm. people influence my body and and especially that I also see this kind of like, a, I don't know if I can explain this correctly, like I almost feel there is like different, you know, the different sides of, of me and I'm sure we all have similar experience. There's like certain me that that is presented outside, which is also connected with all we've been talking before, like all this like social and cultural thing. And I can see it, especially that I'm a Polish person living in Japan so I can see how much actually Polish I am mm. or how like you know religion um, I was raised as a Catholic even though I'm not practicing and I you know don't go to church I can see how like certain values the Catholic values are in me mm. so there's like this, this one part and then, then then I feel there is this kind of inside part like you know in me that I don't know I'm sometimes talk or refer to and there is also some some someone that is like in between and th- this is all contained in that like you know in the flesh in that you know the the physical form so i i just i feel it's like fascinating this this connections and this like different dialogues that is happening and also if i think about like me being inside my and identity i think the body is something very outside like you can observe your body you can see your hands you can see your legs you don't really see your face you see yeah. your face only in the or only on the photo but the, the the legs and the the hands they are this the way of experiencing the world so that's also something i'm really really interested in. and and when you for example make love 
with someone it's like it's almost like a snapshot of like body parts and like the elements that you know encounter another person which is also like really interesting so mm. those are like re- like probably for me the reasons why i'm interested in that kind of you know way of thinking yeah that's a lot <laughs> but it's so good though because it's all of those things and and a lot of it reflects some of my thoughts about it as well in terms of where emotional experience takes place is in the body and I think a lot of coming to understand the way we feel about things is learning to live in harmony with our bodies and thinking about emotions in this sense of recognizing the bodily experience that we're having and coming to understand it as our human experience and you know while the politics of bodies and particularly the politics of gender and bodies is extremely complicated and if you know you can get into um, you know not all women have uteruses not all uh, women have vaginas even it's just this the, the the politics of of how we create gender and how it relates to the body is extremely complex and beautiful in its own way but what it comes down to is that everyone has a body <laughs> and yes we, it is how we interface with the world and it is how we manifest emotions which is such a fascinating process and traditionally female bodies as society you know has defined them for hundreds of years and female emotions, as society has defined those for hundreds of years, are something that is frightening and powerful and sought to be controlled either through cultural norms or legislation. And it's, I think, part of exploring the feminine and it's part of exploring feminism is finding ways to push against that. And, you know, you look at the, all you have to do is look at the origin of the word hysterical to understand that. That, for me, is part of the reason why I think artists who are interested in explore this return to the body is that, like, you pretty much universally, you look at history, you look at the way people are socialized, female bodies, female emotions, we have to control them. They're inconvenient. They're messy. They're something to be ashamed of. And it's just being like, fuck that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's definitely like part of it. And I feel, especially now uh, with the like current political climate and all the, you know, discussions that are happening, it's, it's very, very current. I don't know if you are aware what's going on now in Poland. A few weeks ago, the very right-wing uh, government that is like now ruling uh, they put like almost complete ban of like abortion even when I did see the that. yeah even if you're like uh, the fetus is like kind of will be born like uh, deformed mm-hmm. or even can like die after after the birth like the, the woman is legally not allowed to make the abortion so it was like this the cherry kind of uh, this decision was like the cherry on the on the top of the cake uh, of this was was happening and like you know thousands of women went on the streets and the strikes are are continue until today i i was also responsible of organizing the strike the manifestation like here in tokyo in front of the polish embassy mm. because we have, you know, 2020 and we still, our bodies are in danger, you know, still other people telling women what we should or not should do and and how we should do it. Still, we don't have a, you know, full decision about over our own bodies. It's like, it's really hard to, to believe because I feel we've been so kind of, we got used to, to certain like like freedoms and certain mm. uh, you know like way of, of of living, but we forgot that they are actually quite young. You know, like in Poland, actually, we celebrated last year like only 100 year when Poland got like civil rights to women and they could vote, mm. and it was and it was one of the earliest countries that was like giving women the right to vote. It was just like 100 years ago. 
And we, after 100 years ago, we still have to have the same fight and we still have to prove that we have rights to make decisions our, about our bodies. And then the subject is like so so big because even if you think about like the science, we we believe in science because we believe the science is accurate. It's not esoteric. It's not like energy. It's the science. You know, they make the 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 research and you know that's that's the truth. But you know, there is like a lot of biases. You know, mm-hmm. under like during the making certain research, and when you think about like even Darwinist and what he what he was like thinking about the the like women that they are actually like not as smart as men and they they supposed to stay at home because they, they are the best as a like home like takers and uh, uh, you know they yep. care about the family you know and this kind of way of thinking influenced the whole thought that was like happening during all these years and also like future researchers and like the topics to to be researched. So there is obviously like so much work that needs to needs to be done. And going back to the body, to this like very, you know, this is not philosophy. It's like very, it's very physical. It's there. So I feel it's it should be discussed and it should be shared. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to think that yeah, for some people it's like very scary. Mm-hmm. So it has to be somehow controlled. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard of a, a book that was recently published in the U.S. called Cassandra Speaks. Um, it was by a woman named Elizabeth Lesser. And it's a sort of a retelling of history and really the Western thought canon through this lens of understanding of if women were the voices telling it, it would be a very different history. And in it, in it, yeah, and in it, she talks about how a lot of these great thinkers, you know, as you say, like Darwin, who shaped Western thought, we kind of just in, you know, in 2020, we just kind of don't really pay attention to all the horribly misogynistic things that they said. Like, we're just like, no, 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 like, don't, don't, just don't look at that part. But like, people have Mm. been looking at that part. For hundreds of years, you know, and it did shape us like their their writing shaped us, you know, as as much as the um, the the Finch's beaks in there with that text, as you say, are things about, you know, women being biologically inferior and, and needing to fulfill certain roles. Anatomy is destiny, all of that. So it's anyway, it might be of interest to you. So just kind of based on some of the things that you, you were you were talking mm. about, but it's yeah, it's it's a really beautiful uh, you know thought game that's sort of thinking about history if women were the ones telling it. It's yeah, I, I do like that idea. You know, the subject is also very interesting when we come back to Japan, you know, and also like the role and the position of woman in that society, because that's completely different concept here again. And uh, and like, you know, like Japan, it's uh, it is like very traditional country, conserv- conservative uh, and also patriarchal when you look at the numbers of like female CEO or like even you know PhD students or like uh, the the like female who are having like a, a top positions at the university it's like it's obviously they are in a disadvantage so and then like the traditional model of women actually you know studying but then studying just to be kind of to, mar- to still marry better because she has education and then stay at home and look after the, you know, the, 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 the babies and the household and the guy, you know, taking the, the burden off, like, you know, working and, and earning the money. It's like, it's quite, quite interesting to, to see this, but then also seeing a lot of like micro aggressions between women's, you know, towards other women, like single mother here are, you know, they are in really, really uh, bad situations. They are very often bullied by other women because they are like single mothers and kids are bullied at school. So there is like the whole like culture actually created by like women, you know, towards other women, which is like so, so interesting and sad. And then 
adding on the top, like the involvement of women in the politics in a sense of even following like Me Too movement or other like movements just doesn't exist. There is no this like, you know, critical thinking kind of created. So it's like, it's it's also really interesting to see this. And then when I ask like Japanese women, are you happy? That's kind of stupid question because mm-hmm. they don't think about the other side, mm-hmm. right? But for me coming from the Western, it's like how you can, you know, agree to live like, you know, live like this and not wanted to change this. So, so yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to see this. Isn't there a, a phrase in, in Japan, and I might be misremembering it, but it has to do with something like marriage is like death for a woman. When I was last in Tokyo, a, a Japanese woman was telling me that it's like a, it's like a turn of phrase that people say in Japan often because her life ends when she gets married because it becomes Mm. about her family her children keeping her house you know her career goes away it's Mm. yeah Yeah. it's that yeah I she didn't tell me what it was in Japanese nor do I think I'd you know remember it five years on but um but it it, that really struck me yeah I I didn't hear this but I wouldn't be surprised Mm. because there is like of course a lot of responsibilities this like the, the women are taking on and it's uh uh, yeah, connected also with the like the parents-in-law and certain duties that they have, and also like society is very demanding. So I heard from my friends who has like kids at school that also school demand from like you know mothers to be involved in so many activities. So it's like a it's like a lot of things to do. Uh, but yeah, it's like giving up like your freedom. It's like almost you know when you when you think about almost the, the ritual of like marriage like the woman is taken by the man to like his house she's losing mm-hmm. her like family name she's losing her family she's going to his you know house and when you also think about the symbols of veil you know she's like wrapped in veil because she's like so pure or so clean and he right. kind of open her right and discover her and giving her like this new identity you know so it's almost like this but in 2020 yeah totally when I when I got married I I definitely tried to be as aware of possible of the the strange metaphors you know like I wasn't I wasn't given away I didn't have a veil to like symbolize a hymen like I just was like no <laughs> no we're not doing this like we're getting married because I want to marry this person and I love this person. And I, I, I think that that standing up in front of your community, your, your tribes and saying, this is going to be my person and I'm promising it in front of all of you is a powerful yeah. thing, but That's you don't need to like take all of yeah. like the weird symbolism with you if you don't want to. Yeah. 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 I totally know what you mean, because to be honest, until, uh, until now I have a, you know, I call my husband my partner because I think it gives, at least with my understanding of the, you know, the Polish kind of power of the word, like wife and husband, I, I feel it, it describes better when I call like him is my partner. Uh, because it, for me, there is like in the name, like husband and wife, there is like certain element of like, you kind of possess me, you know, you, I'm your I'm yours in that kind of sense. So, um, so yeah, I until today he's my partner. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I feel like we've we've run out of recording time. Um, I, no. <laughs> I know. I think that we. I feel like we just our conversation was like a like a stone across like a deep lake. Like we just got to like skip, skip, skip. You know, we got to talk about all these things just a little bit, but. Um, it's just, yeah, really been delightful to, to chat with you and to get to know you better. And I hope that you can come visit Bangkok again sometime soon. My husband's working on setting up a lithography studio here. So if you do Ooh. want to try your hand <laughs> at the intimidating art, um, you'd, you'd be very welcome to, to come stay with us and give it a go. Thank you. That would be very lovely. No, it's lithography is also on my list. Yeah, I'm sure the time will come. And also when you, if you ever going to be around Japan, Tokyo, definitely you are more than welcome, you know, to... I hope so, <laughs> yeah. When borders open up again, I think Japan is one of the first places that uh, Tim and I are going to look to go, for sure. So we, mm. I, would, I would love to be able to connect, <laughs> yeah. 
And um, before we sign off entirely, would you please let people know where they can find your work and follow you and keep an ear out for the naming of the gallery in Tokyo? <laughs> yes. So um, I think the best way to, to learn uh, about my work is to visit my website, which is my name and my last name.com, which is evelinaskobronska.com. You can also uh, find me and follow me on Instagram. And my name, you can just type my name or you can type Evelello. And, uh, and yes, and I'm on my Instagram, I'm, I'm usually uh, quite regularly post about like news and, and, and stuff. So definitely everything what will happen in the studio will be, will be a post on Instagram or Facebook. You can also sign up on, on my website to the newsletter. Um, I promise not to spam with too many newsletters. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you again. I will put links to everything in the show notes so people don't need to have a maybe a little panic trying to spell your last name. Um, <laughs> and so it'll be easy for them. And um, I will definitely be in touch. And it has been great chatting. So thank you again for, for reaching out. And I hope we get to stay in touch and work together again. I'm sure. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. It was a pleasure. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Phil Sanders, previous director of the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop and master printer at ULAE. We'll be discussing his new book, Prints and Their Makers, updating the canon, and trying to figure out how to expand your community. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.